Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast is funded by listeners like you through Patreon. We want to take a moment just to thank all of our donors. We truly would not be able to produce this podcast or maintain the free resources on our website without you. If you're not a donor and you can, please consider supporting us at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists. Even $1 per month helps us. And if you donate at least $5 a month, you'll gain access to exclusive content. And regardless, you'll be helping us keep the science of learning accessible. You all really make a difference and we appreciate you. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Cindy Nebel and I'm coming to you live from St. Louis uh, where I am now living. Um, I am working uh, virtually through Vanderbilt's EDD program in leadership and learning and organization. It's a role I just started this fall. And so today I am joined by one of my students in that program, Kristen McQuillan. And Kristen, I'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Nebel. Um, so as you said, I'm a student in the doctoral program at Vanderbilt. I live in Baltimore, Maryland, so it's nice that it's mostly a remote program. Um, and my role outside of being a student at Vanderbilt is as a director at an organization called TNTP. And what we do at TNTP is we partner with um, state departments of education, big school districts, charter management organizations um, nationally. And what we do is we help those organizations reach goals for students. So we're a nonprofit, um, and I get the pleasure of partnering with these districts to help them reach goals for students. And we focus a lot on equity. Um, so my background is uh, as a literacy specialist. I worked for about 12 years in Baltimore City Schools as a teacher, literacy specialist, and as an administrator. Um, so now I'm taking all of that background um, and applying it to new situations as I work with clients at TNTP. Yeah, so um, a couple weeks ago now in um, our EDD program, um, we were reading an article, it's um, Metcalf 2017, and I actually reviewed this article on one of our, my recent blog posts. Um, but this article is about learning from errors. And so we were having this great conversation about um learning from errors, and Kristen did a great job of applying this um, to some some uh, reading acquisition information. So we just thought we would have a little conversation about that today and, and share with all of you uh, a little bit more about learning from errors. So um, Metcalf 2017 is an article where she reviews the literature about learning from errors, and essentially what we know is that we learn quite a bit more when we make a mistake than if we do not make any mistakes. That's the gist of it. Um, that if a student um, effortfully tries to uh, come up with an answer and then fails, when they're given the correct answer, they're much more likely to remember it than if they were just given the correct answer to begin with. Now, this information um, is backed by a lot of research. But when we talk to educators about it, we get a lot of resistance, particularly in the United States. Um, Metcalf talks about some of the research um, looking at other countries, and particularly in Japan, they have tons of errors that happen in their classrooms, and they analyze these errors and those kinds of things. But in an American classroom, we 
almost seem like we try to prevent errors, that we offer praise to students for getting correct answers, but when they get something wrong, we almost like avoid saying anything about it. And part of that might be an emotional reaction that um, in American classrooms, it's almost considered like embarrassing to make a mistake as opposed to a learning opportunity. And so um, Kristen was talking about how she saw a connection between that sort of emotional response um, and uh, some of the growth mindset work. Um, so Kristen, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when I read this um, article by Metcalf, which was great um, and really got me thinking about a lot of things, it reminded me of a lot of Carol Dweck's research on growth mindset. And I think what's interesting about it is that Dweck herself has come out and said, like she wrote a great article in the Atlantic saying that all over the place, we are seeing a false growth mindset. And so, you know, I read on and I'm like, what does that mean? A false growth mindset. And she says that in a lot of places, you know, teachers or parents or coaches have sort of mistakenly thought about the growth mindset as just making an effort. And so just applauding students anytime that they make any kind of effort at all, like, good job, you tried really hard. That shows that you think that you can, you know, learn from, from um, whatever we're working on. And what she argued is that the growth mindset is much less about just making an effort and more about this grit and actually learning from failure and, and the humility of like, hmm, I really got this wrong. And what does this say for me? And how do I pick up the pieces and learn moving forward? And, and how do I learn in the same way in new situations? So I think it's interesting because even when we um, in education are open to something, I think a lot of people are excited about growth mindset and Dweck's research. Sometimes we still get it wrong. And that's what this reminded me of when I when I read about, you know, the difference between Asian countries and the U.S. when it comes to failure in the classroom. Yeah. So this growth mindset stuff is more about um, what you do after you make a mistake than it is like not making a mistake at all. So it's not just about, yeah, you you worked hard, but, um, you know, you made a mistake and that's OK. But rather, it's what comes after the mistake that's important, do you then say, hey, that mistake doesn't really have to do with like me as a person. It's not that I'm stupid or whatever, but it has to do with like, oh, I can learn from that and move forward. And I think in, in her book, she talks about this on multiple levels. Like I think she profiles um, an, an elite gymnast and how this elite gymnast basically was winning all these gold medals and her parents pointed out to her, like, you're just settling for gold medals. You're not trying new tricks and really pushing yourself to new levels because you're just settling for what you can do. And when this gymnast actually started trying new things, she kept failing at it. And it was through that failure that she actually was able to, um, to get better and better and to be one of the best um, so I think it's interesting because growth mindset applies to us everywhere we are at on the continuum, whether we're really wise or skillful at something that we're doing or whether, you know, we're just sort of learning something new for the first time. Yeah. And, uh, I think, I think pointing out that Atlantic article where, um, Carol Dweck was talking about the fact that people kind of get this wrong also applies to learning from errors more broadly too, that it's really not just as simple as, make mistakes and therefore you will learn. Um, it really depends on uh, both the type of mistake that you're making as well as um, what you do afterwards. So um, 
when we're talking about learning from errors, we're really talking about learning from informed errors or from educated guesses, that uh, blind guesses really don't get you anything. Um, but it's that effortful process of really trying to think about it and come up with an answer that seems reasonable, that then when you're given the correct answer, that's when we really see that learning take place. Um, and Kristen, I, I really enjoyed your commentary on different kinds of feedback too, um, because it really, right, so we have different kinds of errors that can be taking place, but we also have different kinds of feedback that can come afterward. And the the kind of feedback, it turns out, is a pretty nuanced um, thing, especially when we're talking about reading acquisition, which is not something that I know a lot about. And so maybe you can um, talk a little bit about those different kinds of feedback, um, particularly in reading acquisition, because you had some great examples. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So I was saying, you know, just like, you know, Dweck's research on um, growth mindset is very nuanced and it's easy to get it wrong if you don't really understand it, you know, in the same way, this incredibly important research on errors and feedback is also very nuanced and important. And so one of the examples that I used is that the, as you just said, the kinds of errors that kids make really matters and the kinds of feedback that we give really matters because it's important in reading acquisition that we don't promote um, something that actually gets promoted a lot and that's guessing. And so the example that I use is let's say a kindergarten student is learning how to read and um, they get into a, a book that has, and this happens a lot in kindergarten classrooms, a student has a book that we might call an A book. Like it's a low level book and it has like four words in it and it might, the four words might be I, or three words in it, it might be I see A. And so if they just know I see an A and then they come across a word and it says, you know, they don't know how to decode that word. So what they do is they just look at the picture, right? So if they read, I see a chicken, the teacher could give feedback and say, hmm, you said chicken because you saw a chicken in the picture. What's the first letter in that word and what sound does that letter make? And it might be H and so they might say, and so they might say, oh, hen, right? So what the student essentially did was they used the first letter and the first sound to, and the picture to guess the rest of the word. And what I would argue as a literacy specialist that the teacher should actually do in that moment would be to say, hmm, okay, let's take a look at this word again. Sound out the whole word. Huh, eh, n. Because a kindergartner should know those three sounds. They should know say, that H says huh, that uh, E says eh, and that eh, N says n, right? So they should be able to decode that whole word and sound it out. And when we ask a student to do that, we engage them in a process called orthographic mapping. And so as students are learning to read, as they sound words out the whole way through, they pay attention to the word. And after they've done this several times, it commits to what we call their orthographic map and it becomes more automatic. So that, you know, um, maybe a few months down the line when they see a word like hen, they don't have to sound it out. They can just say hen and read it fluently. But my point in saying this is that we actually see this in a lot of American classrooms where the teacher actually won't prompt the student to sound the whole word out. They'll prompt them to use the first letter and the picture to sound out the rest of the word, right? And so we call this strategy cross-checking or eagle eye, sometimes teachers call it. 
And literacy specialists like me argue that this is actually a really bad habit to teach students because they are not using their decoding knowledge to decode the word and we're actually drawing their attention away from the word and to the picture. And so it doesn't commit to their orthographic map. And so this habit, sometimes kids do this and they get over it, but for a lot of students, somewhere between you know, 30 and 40% of kids can't get over that. And they're actually learning a habit that causes them to struggle as readers because when they get to more difficult texts and there's not pictures there to help them guess, they read that first letter sound and then they're just lost. And we have a lot of kids who get relegated into intervention when we're arguing that they maybe wouldn't be an intervention in the first place if we taught them the correct way in the beginning. So I said, you know, this is a case where the error matters and the feedback matters because we shouldn't be promoting guessing. And if you don't get the feedback right, you might reinforce a bad habit. Yeah. And so what I find really interesting about this is that the vast majority of the research that we have on learning from errors and on feedback really has to do with sort of fact learning more than anything else, right? Um, that a lot of it is uh, based on maybe some short answer testing, but on on factual responses. In fact, a lot of these are set up to test um, sort of just like common knowledge sort of facts, like you know, the who was the first president and, and those kinds of things. But we set it up so that some of the questions are are difficult. Um, so you ask for like the capital of a, of a country where people think it's one thing, but it's actually something else, right? Um, so those kinds of things are used a lot. And that's very different than the sort of process um, that you're talking about with um, reading acquisition. But I do think that some of it still kind of applies to both of these situations, right? Because um, we do see that in the research, just providing correct answer feedback is enough to get what we call like a hypercorrection effect, that people are much more likely to remember the correct answer now because they got it wrong and they were corrected, right? And so it's that moment of like, oh, what? I'm so surprised or embarrassed or whatever that I missed that. And so I'm more likely to remember it later on. Um, and so there what a lot of the research says is that you do need to have that sort of correct answer feedback. But I think what, what this adds to that is really like correct answer feedback might not even be sufficient. And so when I think about my own classes um, and teaching statistics, for example, that's, there's a, like a process oriented course. Um, how many times have I taught a class and they get an answer wrong? And in that class, Again, because it's a process-oriented class, I don't immediately just give them the right answer. We walk through like, okay, so how do you arrive at that right answer, right? And we have to walk through that whole process, which is pretty similar to this reading acquisition stuff. But then I think about my gen psych classes, and I don't think about them the same way as being uh, these process-oriented classes. But gosh, Maybe they are, right? That instead, you know, a student gives the wrong answer in class and I provide the correct answer. But maybe at that moment, I shouldn't do that. I should stop and say, okay, let's sound it out. Let's figure out, like, how do you get to that right answer? Let's think about that process. Um, and so I, even though most of the research is just on this correct answer feedback, I think maybe there should be more of a focus on the idea that we need to process errors, like where do those errors come from? And then 
how do you walk through to arrive at the correct answer as opposed to just providing the correct answer? Yeah, I think that's super important. And I, and what you just said brings me back to, you know, the kinds of feedback we give is so important because I use the example of teaching a student to guess using the first letter sound, which we don't want to do, but you also don't want to do what you're talking about, which is to say the word is hen, say hen, right? Like you want them to draw upon the pools of knowledge that they have to solve this themselves. And in reading acquisition, by doing that, they're actually committing that to their orthographic map, which is going to help them a lot more later. Um, I think what's tricky about it is that you can't draw upon knowledge that's not there, right? So sometimes this happens too, right? Let's say the word really was chicken, right? So a student in kindergarten might not know the digraph CH yet, and that those two letters have one sound, and that CK is also a digraph that makes the sound k, right? So like in that instance, the student can't do anything but guess, right? Or you have to tell them the answer. But I think I'm arguing that in situations where you know, like the one example that you just used, that the student has some knowledge to pull from, you can push them to, um, to use that knowledge and maybe the process becomes a bit more rich that way versus kind of just telling them the answer or giving them feedback that pushes them maybe in the case that I just used in the wrong direction. Yeah. And this is something that I feel like keeps coming up too um, in, in our class is this idea that when we're talking about little kids, we tend to do a lot of these things really naturally, right? We use retrieval practice with little kids all the time. We do this sort of, I, I feel like if I was sitting down with my son and trying to get him to learn how to read, right, I'm going to want him to do that process himself. So I'm not just going to tell him the answer right away. I'm going to have him sit there and sound it out and whatever. Um, I feel like that would be a lot more natural with a, a small child. But then for whatever reason, by the time they get to me in higher ed, I'm like just giving them the correct answer and expecting that they can figure out the process themselves. And gosh, why do we do that? Right. And why don't we use more retrieval practice and those kinds of things um, that uh, it, it's sort of a common theme, I feel like, with a lot of the stuff that we talk about is that um, when we're working with little kids, we do a lot of this stuff, but then they get older and we just assume that they can do it on their own or we don't integrate it into curriculum the same way, even though it's a sort of natural process, I feel like. I don't know. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think it I think it makes sense, especially when kids are young and they're they're learning to acquire certain um, foundational skills that we know they need to have, like number sense. You know what I mean? I think we do a lot more prompt, prompting around number sense with younger students than we do with older students where we're like, this is the algorithm, get it right, be automatic with it versus all the things that, that you're talking about. But I will say this too, Dr. Niebel, is that um, in the reading world, and I, I tweet about this a lot and I talk about this a lot, um, there are actually a lot of elementary schools where the practice that I just named, which is to actually get kids to sound out words, is not happening, right? In a lot of our teacher ed programs, we teach things like cross-checking. Like there's a name for it. We teach teachers to tell kids to cross-check and we put books in front of kids where they don't have the knowledge to do much else but guess. Um, and so I think there's this intersection between the way we train teachers, the materials that we put in front of teachers, and then also our understanding of like what works for some kids, what works for most kids, and what works for all kids, right? And so I named it before that some kids can 
you know, do this guessing strategy and then just get over it and eventually be able to to break themselves of the habit of guessing. But for a lot of our kids, they don't. And so, you know, I have that question that you have a lot too. Like, why are we still doing this? Like, if we know that there's a group of kids who are not benefiting from this, why are we still doing it? And I think that's, you know, a huge question for all of us who work in this space between science and education, where we're sort of, you know, asking ourselves and scratching our head, like, why are we using some practices that we know are not great for all kids? And then also to your question, like, why aren't we using some practices that we know could really benefit our students? Yeah, I think all very good points and stuff that we've talked about many times before. And like, the answers there are things like, intuition or it's the way that I was taught or right there's so many reasons why why we get some resistance to these things but um I think I think you hit the nail on the head when you say like we really need to go to teacher training programs that that's that's where we really need to start um in order to make some some big changes um to a lot of I mean to to the whole world right of of bridging science and education um, that's, that's kind of where we need to start. Um, so we're just about out of time for today. Kristen, can you share with everybody your Twitter handle in case they're interested in, in learning more about some of this stuff? Yeah, I tweet about literacy all the time. Um, so my Twitter handle is McGlynn3, M-C-G-L-Y-N-N-3. Um, that's my maiden name and I've never changed my Twitter handle. So I tweet about all things literacy and education, Um, so I'm always looking to, uh, make new friends on Twitter. It's a great space to learn. I love edgy Twitter. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today, Kristen, and I will see you in class on Monday. Yeah. Thank you. This episode is funded by listeners like you to support our work and gain access to exclusive content. Visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.